Good morning, everybody. It's time to start. Welcome to the workshop seminar this morning entitled On the Shoulders of Giants. Good to have you here. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather in this place here at GYC. We thank you for the freedom of worship we have to worship without any consequence negatively upon our lives. Bless us as we do so and speak to our hearts and minds. Inspire us to the giants of the past, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, in this workshop, this is our fifth one. We have looked at some people previously that fit in with the title of what we're doing today. The title today is Youth Living by Conviction. Youth Living by Conviction. And I believe in this world today, there is a great need for people, young people especially, who live by conviction rather than by tradition, rather than by just learned habits, rather than just by what my family do, but will live above and beyond anything else by conviction. The three Hebrew boys of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, were young people who lived by conviction, not by what everyone around them was doing. In Daniel chapter 1, one of my favorite verses of that chapter is not verse 8 that we always turn to when it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. But I like verse 10. I believe it's verse 10. Maybe it's 11 or 12. But it's the verse where um, the cupbearer, what's his name? Melzar. Melzar says to them, but if I do this and give you this special diet, I'm paraphrasing, you'll look worse than all the other children. And in the King James, it says, of your sort or of your tribe. Meaning he's looking at them and says, I've got 500 Hebrew captives here and only four are asking for an exception. All the other 496 Hebrew captives are eating this food. So what makes you so special? They said, we are young people living by what? Conviction. We have principles above and beyond what our peers and what they are doing. It's important for us to look back. It's important for us to know where we come from. Some of us have family histories that are very interesting, and we need to know those. And this Isaac Newton quote, Isaac Newton was a, a scientist. He was also a theologian. He wrote a lot, on, a lot on the books of Daniel and Revelation. In fact, probably more on Daniel and Revelation than he wrote on science. And he, had the, he has this quotation that in some ways was the inspiration behind the, the, the title of this seminar. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of of giants. We have spiritual giants in the Bible. The Daniels, the Josephs, the Esthers, the Abrahams. We have those spiritual giants in the pages of Scripture, but in addition to that, we have spiritual giants in sacred history as well, in, in Reformation history, in early church history, and in Adventist history, and it's by standing on their shoulders that we get to see, in a sense, spiritually cast our eye further into the future. Have you ever wondered, this is just my own observation, but if you've read the book Great Controversy, has anyone read it? Yeah, read it? The book Great Controversy, or as they say in England, Great Controversy, is kind of split into two halves. The first half of the book 
Destruction of Jerusalem, Era of Spiritual Darkness, the Wadenzies, John Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, etc. Zwingli. The first half of the book is historical. An American reformer, I think it's called, William, T I mean, William, William Miller. So you have the first half of the book that's historical, and the second half of the book is theological, doctrinal, and future. Why kind of that divide? I know she's looking at 2,000 years of history, but the way I analyze it myself is this. In the second half of the book, in particular, the last 10 or 15 chapters of the book, chapter 37, liberty of conscience threatened. When she's talking about the end time events as to how the end of the world will transpire, She's describing a time when church and state combine. She's describing a time when we won't have freedom of, freedom of, of worship. She's describing a time when liberty will be threatened. She's describing these prophetic end times. Why is the first half of the book historical? Why does she use those particular characters? I believe it's because of this. They illustrate historically how you can stand in a time when liberty of conscience is threatened. So Martin Luther is there as an illustration for us today to look back and say, what is it going to be like for us to stand at the end of time when liberty of conscience is threatened? How do I get encouragement? Well, I can look back at Martin Luther. I can look back at Zwingli. I can look back at John, John Wycliffe. I can look back at these heroes of the past, these giants of the past, and they give me encouragement to know that in the future, if they've stood back then, I can stand as well. History is important. Some of you had really boring history teachers in school, and they did the world a disservice. If you just memorize dates, history is boring. If you memorize the moral lessons of history and look for possible patterns or see how what happened then might happen in the future, Edmund Burke said this, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. We're seeing that today in the world on a global scale, on a national scale. And it's important for us to know the past. Very important. And it's important for you to read. I shared this quote twice yesterday. I'll share it one more time again. The first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory. Destroy its books, its culture, its history, and before long, the nation will forget what it was. 1930s Germany, Russian Revolution. These events have happened cyclically, where books and libraries have been destroyed, and they've tried to erase the past and recreate a new identity. And I shared yesterday that the challenge of today is not so much the issue of illiteracy here in America, because I would expect that pretty much everyone in here can read to a competent level. However, if we did a straw poll and asked, how many of you in this room, not, I don't want your hands to go up, I don't need anyone, you know, proud of yourself. <laughs> if I was to do a straw poll in here though and say, how many of you have read a book in the last month for pleasure? Not a textbook for school, not your Sabbath school lesson, and this might sound heretical, not your Bible. But you've read another book, 
just to learn, just to educate yourself, or just to enjoy the style of the author. I would hedge a bet that less than 20 hands will go up. America today and the West has a problem of illiteracy, meaning we can read, but we don't read. In many ways, in some ways, that's what inspired us to do lineage, because no one's going to... People don't read books so much today. If we can translate that written content into a visual form, hopefully that will then inspire people to go back and read a bit more. Ellen White said this, familiar quote. You may have heard this in church quoted, and especially the last line. We have nothing to fear for the future, except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. And then she goes on to say, the dealings of God and his people should often be what? Repeated. You know, sometimes, oh, I've heard that before. I don't need to hear that again. No, 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 no. No, no, no. The dealings of God with his people should often be repeated because it gives us that sense of encouragement to know if God dealt, dealt with our people then, he'll deal with us again in the future. The, for his people in this generation, the Lord has wrought as a wonder-working God. The past history of the cause of God needs to be often brought before the people, young and old. We need to recount God's goodness and to praise him for his wonderful works. Why is it as parents or as children, when you were growing up, your parents read to you Daniel in the lion's den, and they read to you Queen Esther, and they read to you the three Hebrew boys, and they read these stories over and over again. Some of you may have grown up with the blue books. Amen? Amen? Those 10. Some of you grew up before the blue books with the, um, the little red ones, My Bible Friends. I've got a son, he's four. I've read those 10 books to him over and over and over again. He can probably recite each story. And when I read into him now, I'm remembering it being read to me by my parents. Clip, clop, clip, clop, went small, donkey's hooves. We recount these stories again and again and again because it encourages us. The same God that dealt then is the same God that will deal with us now. I love the theme text for GYC this year. The theme passage. The theme is the first three words there. But the whole passage is there. You know the story. Shadrach, Mishra, and Abednego standing before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is giving them a second chance. He says, oh, I know you got it messed up the first time. But I'll give you another chance. And they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we, we don't need to uh, think twice, or we don't need to be careful, or we have no need to answer you in this matter. We know what we're going to say. Say, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and we believe he will. Amen. But if not, and that is the crux. This comes down to the very baseline of worship. You know, as Adventists, we love to tell the success stories. We love it. And it's good to tell the success story because it encourages people. I don't know if it, do they call it the, the, the recorder here in America, your union magazines? Whatever they call them. Gleaner, reporter, recorder. Those union magazines are often filled with reports from the conferences which come from local churches. And I can guarantee you, if your church ever writes a report for the gleaner, the recorder, or whatever you call it in your union, you only tell the good stories. You don't send a failure into the union or the, uh, the, the gleaner. Send a good story. 
And you, make, and you edit your good story to make it sound even better. And all pastors and evangelists know how to manipulate numbers. Make it sound better than it really was. We love the good stories. We love the God of verse 17. Because the God of verse 17 is the God who makes us feel happy. You know, parents, when their children get, you know, what, what do you call it in America? They get a, um, a university, what's the top grade? What do you call it? On a student or, you know, GPAs 4.0, whatever you call it, or valedictorian, cum laude, or whatever you say. I'm not sure how you say it here. But parents love to say, oh, my student graduated valedictorian, honest student. Oh, 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 oh we, we praise God, we praise God. They, they, they drop that in at the end just before they forget to drop it in. <laughs> we love that God of verse 17. What about 18? I know a guy in England who went three years of university and couldn't graduate after three years of university because his final exam was on the Sabbath. And all of you are thinking, but surely they moved it because we live in a land of liberty and freedom and surely they're going to move it. Guess what? He appealed to this, this person, this person, all the way up. And they said, no, we're not moving it. Take your exam or don't graduate. It's not Russia. It's not China. It's England. And still some of you on your head are thinking, well, he didn't try something. He must have, why didn't he get a letter from the, con no, no, couldn't graduate. So three years of university, gone. Doesn't graduate. Verse 18. But if not, we're still not going to worship. God needs you, God needs all of us here in this room to give our lives to him. Especially, I'm appealing to those who are a little bit younger. The best years of your life are ahead of you. The world wants your best decades. Sometimes we think as young people, and some of you may even be thinking, I don't even want to be here at GYC. My parents dragged me. They, they registered me. I had no choice because my grandparents didn't want to take me for the weekend. And my aunt and your uncle are out of town. And all my options for staying home were just gone. So I had to get dragged along. And here I am. But when I'm 18, and I go to university, goodbye. And even in this day and age, it doesn't even have to be a public school that you go to. But you can still go to an Adventist university and live your own life. I'm just waiting for that. Then I'm gone, because I'll be free. Do my own thing. And then I'll be like that other sister in church, another old guy in church, that when they were 50 and 60, they came back to God all washed up. And I'm hounding back my life. No. Give your best years to God. Because the world wants your best years. Amen? What's that house there? Steve Jobs' grandma's house. Where his grandma lives. She still lives there today. 
And she's tired of people going by the house taking pictures, but I did as well. <laughs> There's big signs on the street, don't stop, don't stop. So I drove and snuck one. But it's in that garage or garage, however you say it, where Steve Jobs built the first Apple computer. An invention that would change the world. But how old were they at the time when they founded Apple? Steve Jobs was 21, Steve Wozniak was 26, and Ronald Wayne, some of you don't actually know that, he was like the older investor that kind of put some money into, into it, was like the mentor, and then got out a month or so later and sold his shares in the company for $800. <laughs> Hindsight, eh? Great thing. 21, 26, and they changed the world. Who are these guys here? Anyone know? One's called Larry and one's called Sergey. Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And if you don't know who they are, your kids know when they say, hey, mom, Google it. They invented Google at the age of 25 and 26. Who's this chap here? Zuckerberg. Facebook or Meta. They were all students at Harvard when they founded this company. Mark Zuckerberg was 19. Dustin Moscovich was 19. Chris Hughes was 19. Andrew McCollum was 20. And Eduardo Severin, 21. At the age of 19, 20, 21, created a company that changed the world. Who's this guy? Martin Luther King. I think you have a holiday because of him, eh? Right? How old was he when he died? They had the bus boycott in was it Montgomery, Alabama, when he was 25. You know, when I look at the historical pictures in the black and white, you just think, oh, he's an old guy. He was 25 when he organized a bus boycott in Alabama. He was 33 when he stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and gave the I Have a Dream speech. So when he's 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, he is having meetings with the president and the government of the United States speaking for his people. At the age that some of you are. And he was shot dead at the age of 38. The sports world. The sports world is not interested in athletes in their 30s. Once you get to 30, you're over the hill. Your contract lengths are shorter when you're re-signing with, you, with your baseball or your basketball club. Or we give them a one-year extension, rolling contract. When you're 25, 23, you get a five-year contract. When you're 32, you get a one-year contract. Because we don't know if your knees or your ankles or your elbows are going to go. The sports world wants you in your 20s. That's when they want you. And the military, the military, the military don't want 50-year-old soldiers. They want 20, at the most 30. They want that decade of your life. If the world wants your 20s and your 30s, how much more can God do with your 20s and your 30s? When you've got that energy and that passion and that fearlessness and, and, and the, the, the naivety to not know what doesn't work. So you just try it anyway. 
Shoot for the moon. Or the stars, sorry. Shoot for the sun and you might hit the moon. If I was to put the first slide there and said John Knox, nearly all of you would have heard of John Knox. John Knox was a great man. He founded the Church of Scotland. What church is the Church of Scotland? You've all heard of it by a different name. The Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church comes from Scotland, comes from John Knox. But John Knox came after this guy. His name is George Wishart, and I really like his story. George Wishart was born in 1513, and he dies, is martyred in 1546. He's martyred at the age of 32 or 33. We're not sure exactly um, how old he was. He studied at the University of Aberdeen, and he taught at Montrose in Scotland, and he taught Greek. So that sets him apart. He's teaching the Greek, not the Latin. He went to Cambridge at the age of 28, sorry, in 1538 at the age of 25, and there he met Hugh Latimer and the other reformers. Cambridge, in many ways, is the birthplace of the English Reformation, for Hugh Latimer and Thomas Bilney and some other characters were there at the University of Cambridge. They met in a pub. I'm not, I'm not condoning pub, pub life, but they would meet in the pub, and there they would discuss their Lutheran ideas while having a beer. God's able to use lots of people, amen? And there they would meet Hugh Latimer, Thomas Bilney. In fact, Thomas Bilney is a really interesting guy, and Hugh Latimer is a really interesting guy. We talked about Hugh Latimer yesterday. He's one of the Oxford martyrs. But did you know Hugh Latimer was converted by Thomas Bilney? Thomas Bilney was short. Hugh Latimer was tall. Not that that really matters. But Hugh Latimer was a staunch Catholic. And Bilney was a staunch Protestant. And Bilney was impressed by God to try and reach out to Latimer. What do you do? It's illegal to talk about Lutheran views. It's illegal. You can get arrested. So what does Thomas Bilney do to try and convert Hugh Latimer? And it's illegal to openly proselytize or convert people. What do you do? <laughs> take him to the pub. <laughs> no, he didn't take him to the pub. What does he do? He was a priest, so he has a confessional booth. So what does um, Thomas Bilney do? He goes to the confessional booth. And if anyone knows about priest vows, even to this day here in America, if you go to a confessional booth and you confess to the priest, hey, I killed a man. The priest is sworn. The police the FBI, the CIA, the President of the United States can go to that priest and ask him, did that man tell you he killed the other man? And the priest can't say. The police can't go to the priest as a source of information in society. What you say to the priest, they're sworn to secrecy. So Thomas Bilney's like, well, if I go to the priest and talk about Lutheran ideas, guess what? He can't say anything. So Thomas Bilney goes to the confessional booth using his ingenuity and, it, <laughs> and he goes there and he confesses Protestant ideas. He talks to him. He basically witnesses in the confessional booth and converts Hugh Latimer. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> so, so George Wishart comes down to Oxford, Cambridge, sorry, meets with Hugh Latimer and the other reformers there. He then goes to Bristol he and he taught at Cambridge from the age of 29 to 30. Then, he comes back to Scotland, and as he comes back to Scotland, he meets John Knox, and he strongly influences John, John Knox. Similar age, 
So George Wishart is about 30 at this time. And for the next two years, he travels across Scotland. He goes to Ayr, he goes to Dundee. They had a plague in Dundee. Everyone's fleeing the city. And George Wishart goes to Dundee, where there was a plague, so he could minister to the people who were sick there. He goes to Montrose. George, sorry, John Knox is his bodyguard. And he walks around with him carrying a two-handed sword. As you do. He was finally captured in a place called Ormiston. It's just outside, um, it's just outside Edinburgh. And there, as he's captured, he's going to preach it, and he had a hunch that they're going to catch He has like 500 soldiers trying to catch him in all these places, and he keeps, uh, keeps getting, getting away from them, like dodging them. And when he goes to Ormiston, John Knox wanted to go with him. And George Wishart turns back to John Knox, and he says, no. No, you stay here. And he said these words. He said, no, one is sufficient for sacrifice. You don't come with me. You stay here. One. He had this pre preemption, this whatever you want to call it, that he was, that was it. He was going to get captured there and then that would be it. He said, one is sufficient for sacrifice. He was taken to Edinburgh Castle. Then he was taken to St. Andrew's Castle. And that picture there is St. Andrew's Castle. It sits right on the coast. St. Andrew's is a beautiful, beautiful town. If you ever go to Scotland, make sure you go to St. Andrew's just north of Edinburgh. It's the home of golf, if any of you like golfing. But, but there's also some great Reformation history there as well. And there in St. Andrew's Castle, he was taken there. He was held a prisoner. Uh, John Knox at a later time was held prisoner in that castle. And he was held a prisoner there. And then later on, he was taken out of the castle and he was martyred. Notice the ages, though. He meets with fellow reformers at the age of 25. He preaches in Bristol at the age of 26. He teaches at Cambridge 29 to 30. He returns to Scotland at age 30. He's captured a martyr at the age of 32. He's a young man. He's a young man. He gave his 20s to God. Sadly, he didn't have time to give his 30s. And he was martyred on this spot here. It says GW, just outside St. Andrew's Castle, on the road there, where the cars go by and park. They've got the GW there, standing for George Wishart. That's the spot where he was martyred. Cardinal Beaton was the Cardinal of Scotland. They're like the Archbishop of Scotland. He's the one who oversaw it. As a, as a kind of a side note, George Wishart's, some of his followers afterwards, they were so enraged that he had been martyred that they took over the castle after he had been martyred, they stormed it. They took it over. They also took Cardinal Beaton captive. They killed him. They hung him out the window. And they had the first Protestant church service in Scotland while he's hanging out the window. We have a beautiful history, amen? <laughs> but what's his legacy? What's his legacy? John Knox who saw him being burned at the stake, who's the one that George Wishart said, one is sufficient for sacrifice, John Knox would go on to live a long life. He would spend time in England. He would spend time in Geneva, five, five or so years in Geneva, where he learned and studied with John Calvin. He would come back to Scotland, establishing the Scottish Reformation, establishing the Presbyterian or the Church of Scotland. He would be the one who would stand in front of Mary, Queen of Scots. And you've heard the, 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 the quotations maybe, where she says, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than 10,000 men armed and ready for war where many other reformers would wilt in her presence, he stood strong. 
We don't really know much about George Wishart. He dies at 32. But John Knox continues and lives in his legacy. If I have seen further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. These men, their convictions, their experiences, they form a part of our spiritual DNA. Forms a part of who we are as Adventists. William Tyndale is another one of my favorite reformers. They did a recent poll, well, not recent, it's 20 years ago now, in the BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, of the greatest Britons of all time. And anytime you have these polls, they're, all, they're always biased to people that have lived closer. Like someone that lived 20 years ago is going to go higher in the vote than someone who lived 500 years ago. But William Tyndale still sat at 26th on the list. Really, he should probably be in the top 10. For sure. For sure. But he sat at 26th, judging by people in 2002. William Tyndale was born in North Nibley in 1494. A lot, of, a lot of stuff happened around the early 1500s. He studies at Oxford University. He works at Cambridge University. And he met with the other scholars at the White, that's the name of it, sorry, I forgot the name of it, the White Horse Inn. The pub. And there, the pub doesn't stand today, but they have a sign on the wall there that says, Site of the White Horse Inn, known as Little Germany, where Cambridge scholars debated the works of Martin Luther in the early 16th century, a birthplace of the Reformation in England. And there he would meet Hugh Latimer and Thomas Bilney, would have been his contemporaries at the time. So you've got William Tyndale, you've got George Wishart, you've got Hugh Latimer, you've got, you've got, you've got um, Thomas Bilney. A very dynamic time. What are some of the ages of his life? Let's have a look here. He studies at Oxford and works at Cambridge. In 1521, he meets fellow reformers at the age of 27. In 1523, he starts translating the Bible, age 29. Translating the Bible. The Greek. Translating the Greek to the English. At the age of 29, he gave his intellect to God. Some of you here are very, very intelligent people. Give your intellect to God. Let him sanctify it. Let him use it. In 1524, he leaves England, age 30, because it was illegal to translate the Bible in England. And from the age of 30 until he dies, he spends the next decade of his life outside the country of England. The price he paid for his convictions. He lived for a cause bigger than himself. The cause was the translation of the Bible. That's the purpose of my life. And if it means I have to live as an exile or an outlaw in another foreign country, I will do so. He completes the translation in 50, well, the New Testament in 1525, age 31. The first copies are smuggled back into England at the age of 32. And he's a wanted man. King Henry VIII wants him. At the age of 36, he completes the Pentateuch. And at the age of 44, he's condemned for heresy and burned at the stake. He gave his 20s. He gave his 30s to God. And he lived for a cause far bigger than himself. Why did he die, though? Because it was illegal. Because of the 1408 Oxford Commission to translate the Bible. This came after William, um, John, John, John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe had translated the, the Bible in the 1380s. And the Oxford Commission bans it. What do you do? It's illegal for you to own a copy of the Bible. It's illegal to translate the Bible. It's punishable by death. And even if they can't catch you, they might kill your friends. What does truth cost? 
What does truth cost to us? He was when he was sitting around a dining table that someone said to him, if we had the choice between God's laws and the Pope's laws, we're better off with the Pope's laws. And he responds and says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life in many days, I will cause the boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. The boy that drives the plow is, a, is an image of an uneducated child whose parents cannot afford to send him to school, so he has to work as a laborer in the field with no education. He can't read, he can't write, he can't do arithmetic, he doesn't know science, he doesn't know geography, he doesn't know history. I will cause that boy who drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And Tyndale set about to write a Bible that would be read by all people. And to make this completely clear, he used monosyllabic words in his translation of the Bible. That's in your hands if you have a King James Bible today. The King James Bible, at least the New Testament, is about 80% William Tyndale's translation, cut, copy, paste. Or they verified it. Look at that verse there, famous verse, John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Every word in that very theologically complex verse has one syllable except for the word beginning. In him was life and the light and the life was the light of men. And many of his idioms were, were monosyllabic. The effect of this was huge. We even use many of his idioms today. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given. Judge not that you be not judged. The powers that be. Oh, why didn't I? Oh, the powers that be. Like we just say this. It's infused into English language. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Signs of the times. Let there be light. Go the extra mile. Let my people go. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. These are all phrases that came from William Tyndale's translation of the Bible a masterpiece of the English language. Today, they have an original copy that sits in the British Library. They paid one million pounds for it back in 1990. That's $1.5 million, 34 years ago. A complete analysis of the authorized version of the Bible, known as the King James, found that William Tyndale's words account for 84% of the New Testament and 75% of the Old Testament books that he translated. But William Tyndale, there's a statue of him today that is just outside the Ministry of Defense overlooking River Thames. They're in one of the parks. At the bottom of the statue is that plaque. And that plaque describes the final words he said. But before I go to that, he traveled to Hamburg. He had to escape there. He headed to Worms. We was able to finish his translation of the New Testament. From the time he left England in May 1525, he had finished the New Testament sometime in 1524. The Bishop of London bought 6,000 copies of his Bible and burned them on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral on the 11th of February 1526, attended by 36 bishops, abbots, and friars. He searched all over Europe, bought as many copies as he could to get rid of them. The only problem was he bought them at full price. which meant that William Tyndale was able to get out of debt. Amen. And also, it enraged people who saw this profligate waste of the Bible and resources. But it enabled the better quality of the Bible to come, fulfilling the words of 2 Corinthians, where it says you can do nothing against the truth 
but for it. Those who read his Bible, some of his friends were martyred or burned. You see, William Tyndale chose to go against the laws of the land because they were against the Bible and against his conscience. And we also will have to come to a time when we'll go against the laws of the land and we'll stick to our conscience and we'll stick to the Bible and we leave the consequences to God. And like Daniel and his, Hebrew, his friends will say, but if not, God could deliver us. And I've read many stories of people who he has delivered. But if he chooses not to deliver me today, I still will not worship. The last place he lived was Antwerp in modern-day Belgium. And he lived with a man there called Thomas Points. He was befriended by Henry Phillips, who was a Judas-like character, who was sent on a mission by King Henry VIII to track down William Tyndale and get him. So he becomes his friend, spends months with him. And then one day he goes to his house. And as he's walking out the house, Henry Phillips had already got two men stationed on the door as he left. As he walks out the house, he signals to them, and they grab William Tyndale as he leaves the house, and they take him to the castle. While he was a prisoner, they attempted to have a reconciliation between him and the king. They wanted to bring him back to England, because he was still, he was high profile. And he says, well, if I come back to England, will the king let me translate the Bible? And they said, no, we can't guarantee that, but come back anyway. He says, no, it's okay, you can kill me. I'm not going home unless you promise me. I'm not going home to negotiate. The purpose of my life is the translation of the Bible. I'm living for a cause bigger than life. When he dies, it was a sad, it was a lonely, and it was a gruesome death. This is the spot where they killed him. It's in a park today in a residential neighborhood just on the side of Brussels. They strangled him, but for some reason they couldn't strangle him properly. I don't know why you don't just keep on strangling him. I mean, it takes, what, three minutes to strangle someone? I don't know. I'm just guessing, based on my deep physiological knowledge of the human body. But they couldn't strangle him properly, so then they burned him. And they burned him at the stake. You see, our legacy is more important than our life. And it's important to live for a cause bigger than ourselves. As he died, the plaque says, his last words of William Tyndale were, Lord, open the, eye that, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Within a year, the king said, put a Bible in every church in England. Can you imagine what William Tyndale will think when he gets to heaven? He has no idea. He died a lonely death there in Belgium. He has no idea the impact of his life. None. None whatsoever. He died in faith that maybe one day we could stand on the shoulders of giants. Paris Hill. Anyone been to Paris Hill? Not Paris, Paris Hill. If you're going to go to one of the Parises, go to this one. Amen. Paris is overrated. Overrated. This Paris Hill is in Maine. That's where it sits. 
What else can you see on the map that's clear? Boston's in the cor bottom corner, and you've got Portland a little way up, and then there in the middle of nowhere, go to the middle of nowhere, turn right, and you find Paris Hill, Maine. Who lived in Paris Hill, Maine, and why is it significant to us as Adventists today? Who lives in Paris Hill, Maine? There were three families that lived there that would go on to have a significant impact in Adventism. You had the Andrews family. You had the Stevens family. And you had the Stowell family. The Stevens family, why are they significant? They had two daughters. One daughter married Jay and Andrews, and one daughter married Uriah Smith. Hometown love. Amen. You need the Stowell family, who had two, a daughter and a son, and the Andrews family. So what happens? It's in this town. I think it's 1846, I think, or five. I'm not sure exactly. Where a tract on the Sabbath goes to the home of the Stowell family. The Stowell family parents pick it up, peruse it slightly, put it down, disregard it. The daughter, Marion, picks up the tract. She's aged 15. It was a tract written by Thomas Preble, T.M. Preble. She reads the tract, and she says, wow, this is amazing. I am going to keep the Sabbath. She then shows it to her brother, Joshua, who's 17. Joshua says, yeah, I'm going to keep the Sabbath too. They say, oh, what about John? They take it across town, and they go to John Nevin Andrews, who's a very intelligent young man, and he trusted his opinion. What do you think of this tract? They had already kept one Sabbath, and they take it to Jay and Andrews, and he reads, he says, yeah, yeah, we need to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to keep the Sabbath too. And Jay and Andrews keeps the Sabbath. It's a story where you have the children, the teenagers, keeping the Sabbath because they read it in the Bible, and they're convicted by the Holy Spirit to do so before their parents. In that sense, it's the kernel, it's the essence of the Protestant Reformation, which is you live by the Bible. Your conscience is captive to the word of God, not the words of your parents. I'm not talking about parent children rebellion here. But the teenagers follow the Bible and follow their conscience before their parents. In that sense, the youth of Paris Hill, Maine, live by the great Protestant principle where their conscience is captive to the word of God. What's also interesting about Paris Hill, Maine is where the Adventist Review started. Little sleepy New England town today, nice leafy neighborhoods, have no idea that this international magazine of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, our flagship magazine that's been going on for 160, 70, 80 years, started in their town. This is the house of Marion Stowell and her brother Joshua Stowell, lived in today by a good Maine family. This is the house of Jay and Andrews. Today, it's a golf club, country club. Historic events took place here. And this is the front copy of the tract that came there. Tract showing that the seventh day should be observed as a Sabbath instead of the first day, according to the commandment by T.M. Preble. They didn't really like short titles. <laughs> you kind of get the conclusion in the title. I wonder what that book's about. <laughs> 
And it was there in this house. And these houses with this foundational principle, this foundational principle of what's your foundation in your spiritual life? Age, position, tradition, or conviction and scripture? Which one do you take as your guiding principle? This is what we get from the Reformation. And in this Adventist town, they had conviction and scripture that guides them in what they decide. Martin Luther is the one who said, unless I am convinced by scripture or by plain reason, I cannot recant for my conscience is held captive to the word of God. And to go against conscience is neither right nor what? Nor safe. God is looking for young people today who will stand for him no matter what. It's important for us to know our spiritual DNA. For if we're seen further than others, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. I'm going to share with you the story of Mary Jones. You can get a little book called Mary Jones and Her Bible. Somewhere, probably secondhand. Mary Jones lived in Wales. Anyone here been to Wales? One, two. You should go. It's beautiful. They speak Welsh there, which is a very funny language. There's like no vowels. It's all consonants. <laughs> beautiful country. Hills, mountains, lakes, streams. Proud people. And there in this, in this country, there was a little girl who lived who wanted to have a copy of the Bible. She was poor. She didn't have a lot of money. She saved up a few pennies there from the age of 11, and a few pennies there from the age of 12, and a few pennies from the age of 13, and a few pennies from the age of 14, a few pennies the age of 15, until finally, at the age of 16, she saved up enough pennies where she can go and buy a copy of the Bible. The time period she's living in is the late, I believe it's the late 1700s. I'll probably have it on a, on a future slide. She, the nearest Bible for her, that's Wales, part of Wales, North Wales. The peninsula that sticks out. You can see the mountains of Snowdonia. And she lived here, this little thing here. The nearest bi Bible for her was a 26-mile journey to a town called Bala. Today, if you were to walk that, according to Google Maps, as I took a screenshot and put it on my presentation, it would take you nine hours and 40 minutes to go from her house to Bala. There's a little bit zoomed in. So, at the age of 16, she gets her money, and she starts her journey, 26 miles. And here's the point, one of the points. She had saved her money to buy a Bible. She doesn't even have a pair of shoes. So I would rather have a Bible than a pair of shoes. And so she walks 26 miles, but it's not really 26 miles she's walking. How many miles is it she's walking? 52. Because you've got to go home again. She didn't get shoes when she got there either. There wasn't no buy a Bible, get a pair of shoes too. So she walks 26 miles one way with her money to get the Bible. They have a copy of one of the, of the Bibles she bought. It's in Cambridge today. 
Her house is the top right picture there. Today, there's just the, the stone walls around it, and there's a little monument inside. Off the beaten path, tour buses don't go there. And there from this house, she sets off on her journey of 26 miles. The bottom picture there is the church in Bala where she arrives. There's two different stories as to when she got there, whether the Bible was there, or some stories say the Bible wasn't there, and she had to wait for two days for the Bible to arrive. There's conflicting stories. But she gets there to Baal and she knocks on the house of the minister. She says, I've come here to buy a Bible. Come to buy a Bible. And there, the reverend, where is it? Thomas Charles. She was born in 1784, so she would have been 16 in the year 1800. Or was 18. But she goes and gets her Bible. And she lived until 1866. What's significant about this story? This was around the time where you had a lot of religious awakening in America and in Europe. This was the time where it's just on the cusp of the great modern missionary movement. David Livingston is about to go. Adana R.M. Judson. This is like just before that time. This is also just before the time of where you start to have Bible societies whose mission was just to print the Bible and publicize the Bible and distribute the Bible all over the world. It hasn't happened yet, though. It hasn't happened yet. And Mary Jones, who makes this journey, she buys the Bible. A few years later, not many years later, there was a meeting of the Religious Tract Society in December 1802 where they suggest to form a society for the purpose of distributing Bibles. And the famous line that was used, he told the story of Mary Jones. And then after telling the story of Mary Jones, Reverend Joseph Hughes says, if for Wales, why not for the kingdom, the United Kingdom? And if for the kingdom, why not for the world? And this vision was cast, not just Bibles for Wales, not just Bibles for the United Kingdom, but Bibles for the whole world. And the story of Mary Jones and her barefooted 26-mile walk was used as an inspiration to motivate the people of that religious tract society in 1802. In March 17, March the 7th, 1804, at the London Tavern, Bishopsgate, the British and Foreign Bible Society was formed with its goal to distribute the Bible without note or comment. There'll be no commentaries in the Bible. There'll be no notes at the bottom. We'll just print the Bible and distribute the Bible. The British and Foreign Bible Society, then soon after that, you then had the American Bible Society. Today, you just have a society that's called the Bible Society. In the first 100 years, from 1804 to 1904, they printed and distributed 204 Bibles around the world. Missionaries then went out and traveled the world. David Livingston and, and these men traveled and went around the world. The harvest was truly plenteous, but the laborers were few. And today the words of Mary Jones or the experience of Mary Jones in many ways, I think, should still be an inspiration for us today. A 16-year-old girl barefooted walks across mountainous terrain in Wales to go and buy a Bible. Some of us have enough money in our piggy banks to buy 10. 
or 20 or 30. You don't even need to buy one today. You can just download the app. There's still a lot of work to be done today, friends. There are 7,000 languages in the world. You know, as Adventists, we love to pat ourselves on the back about how good we are. And we are quite good at some things. But we're not always good at self-awareness. We like to tell ourselves that there's 220 countries in the world and Adventists have a presence in, I don't know, was it 208? But there's 7,000 languages in the world. And there's many languages that haven't even, not heard the Adventist message, but not even heard a Christian message. Forget the three angels, they haven't even heard John 3.16. I haven't been, but this is the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. And if I'm correct, this room illustrates, on the one side, they've got a Bible printed in the languages of the world that we have a Bible printed in. Here, this side. On the other side, they've got lit up imaginary Bibles in all the languages that we still don't have a Bible in. William Tyndale translated the Bible at the age of 29. Maybe God's calling you to translate a Bible in an unknown tongue. We've got brains, we have capacity, we have time, because your seven hours of screen time tells you you have time. <laughs> There's 3,500 languages in the world that still have no Bible. If for Wales, why not for the kingdom? And if for the kingdom, why not for the world? Those words still echo down to generation after generation. There's still 3,500 languages that still, in spite of all the millions and millions and millions that have been pr printed and published, there's still 3,500 that still don't even have the Bible. Still don't have the Bible. Is there enough money in the world to get money, Bibles in those languages? Yes. Is there enough people in the world to learn languages and translate them into those languages? Yes. Whom will I send and who will go for me? Here am I, Lord, what? Send me. Friends here at GYC, may the Gospel Commission be something you take and take hold of yourself. And maybe God is calling some of you to make a radical commitment to God. To do something completely out of your family DNA. Yeah, my dad's a doctor, my granddad's an engineer, I'm going to be a dentist. And we'll give our change to the Lord's work. That's great. And we need people that will give their money to the Lord's work. But maybe God's going to call you to say, I'm going to learn this language. Or I'm going to go somewhere. Or I'm going to do something. Radically different, where people will be like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure that's God calling you? Yeah, I'm sure. It's dangerous. I know. Why are you doing it then? 
Well, God's called me. God's called me. God may call some of you to go to missionaries to places that are not safe by American standards. There's diseases. The houses aren't as nice. The education system's not as good. The healthcare system's not as good. And there's no pension. But God may call you. Because the reality is, friends, we stand today on the shoulders of these giants who lived like that so we could live today. My final appeal, it's an appeal to you. Give your best years to God. And maybe you've wasted some years already. Maybe you've wasted your 40s and your 20s already. The next decade is the best decade, amen? Give it to God. Give the best years of your life to God. And let him bless you beyond measure. We love on the shoulders of people who gave their teenage years to God. Gave their 20s to God. Gave their 30s to God. And we reap the benefits today. But let us live a life where the next generation can reap the benefits of us as well. Amen? If we're still here. May we go home up soon. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege we have to call ourselves children of God today. Father, we're inspired by the stories of the past, the sacrifices of the past, the experiences of the past, the beliefs of the past that form the DNA that we have today. May we stand on the shoulders of our giants of history. And as we move forward, Lord, may we move forward in the fear of God with faith knowing that you know the end from the beginning. Bless us, Lord, to this end. Be with those in, in here who the Spirit may be impressing to make a radical commitment for Jesus. Maybe to change the trajectory of their lives, to do something that will make an impact far-reaching for the kingdom. We pray in your name. Amen. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse, the GYC conference, but if not, in Portland, Oregon. GYC is a supportive ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.